Revelation 21. I'm just going to kind of read through some of this and just kind of make comments. And then we're going to be all through the Bible. We're going to do this for a couple of weeks and then we'll get back to our study in Ecclesiastes. This is the end of the Bible. This is, we believe the Bible is inspired of God. It's, uh, it's God-breathed. Theonoustos, that's the, that's the word, God breathed, it's breathed out by God and is therefore comes to us as inerrant and infallible as one book. Sometimes people will look at these 66 books and some 40 human authors and, and, and see discrepancies and, and disunity in the, in the Bible. And I believe just the opposite, that it comes to us, yes, from 40 human authors, but one divine author which means it is one story, one meta-narrative. And as we all know, if you want to know what a story is about, you look at the end of the story. The end of the story will take you to the main point of the story. And uh, certainly the Bible is no exception to that. This is where all of creation, God's purpose for creation, we see all of that bound up in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, John writes, I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sea representing chaos and judgment. And I saw a holy city, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in my uh, interpretation, verse 2 interprets verse 1. We're going to establish tonight that. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth is seen in verse 2 to be one universal city. So I saw the new city, New Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Now, if you have any kind of um, you know margin scriptures with uh, scriptures in your margin, you can see there that that is pointing us back to Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12, and Ezekiel 37 and 27. I do not believe that John is saying this is like that. He is saying all of that points to this reality, and so verse one is interpreted by verse two, the new heavens and the new earth is one mammoth universal city, the new Jerusalem. And then verse 2 and 1 are interpreted by verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now I want you to see something. You, you see it up on the board. Um, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, the prophet writes, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be not re be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So in Isaiah 65, Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth are seen to be as the are seen as the uh, same reality. In fact, the word create there is bara uh, for both uh, verses. And so the new heavens and the new earth is essentially the, the uh, Jerusalem which has been universalized. Jerusalem being the place of God's presence, God's holy city where God dwelled especially with his people. And so in John's vision back in Revelation 21, 
that has come to fruition. The new heavens and the new earth is this one mammoth uh, holy city, the new Jerusalem. And then in verse 4, he writes, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And again, if you have scriptures in your margin, uh, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35.10, Isaiah 51 verse 11, and Isaiah 65 verse 19. And of course, Isaiah, that entire section is centered on a suffering servant, one who will come and all we like sheep who are led astray, the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. And so we understand that the suffering servant will usher in this day where all mourning and all tears will cease. Death will be no more. The death of death and the death of Christ. And that day has been ushered in inaugurally through the cross and the resurrection. The, the uh, enemy we call death, the sting of death has been taken away. We still feel its presence. But the sting of it has been taken away for every believer. One day, its presence will be removed as well. It's the day of the new heavens and the new earth. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He is making all things new. And that event that is consummated in the new heaven and new earth has been inaugurated in the resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave and the immortal swallowed up the mortal. The inglorious was swallowed up by the glorious. Jesus Christ is the first man of the new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation spiritually. One day we will be new creations even physically when our bodies are raised from the grave when Christ returns. Also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, where did John first hear those words? He heard them from his Savior in the days of his earthly pilgrimage. Uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage. What is the one who conquers? The one who is in Christ. And the evidence that a person is in Christ is he conquers, he overcomes, he perseveres in repentant faith. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. Now, in the context, he's referring to apostate uh, people in the church. Um, when he's writing this, Rome has dominion. Uh, you must bow to Caesar. And there were Christians who were compromising their faith. Um, they were offering sacrifices to Caesar to get Rome off their back. And he's saying, if that's you, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. And that's who he's talking about there. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <coughs> Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who's the bride? It's the church. 
Uh, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Uh, now, that, that is an allusion to Ezekiel 40, um, verses uh, 2 and following, uh, where Ezekiel has his uh, vision of this end-time temple, which I believe is fulfilled right here in, in there in this new heaven and new earth. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, which is a, uh, an allusion to Ezekiel 43, verses 2 and 4. You may see that on the screen. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Again, the end time temple that Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 40 to 48 had 12 gates. And we recognize that from Ezekiel 41 or 48 verses 31 and to 34 that may be on the screen. It had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gates, on the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. This city, and I want you to remember these words. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. Notice, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Notice, the city is built like a cube. What does that remind us of? Well, if we know our Old Testament, it reminds us of both the tabernacle and the temple. Now listen to 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 18 to 20. It should be on the board. Um, the inner sanctuary. This is the Holy of Holies in the, the, uh, the temple. Okay, The temple had three parts. The Holy of Holies, the holy place, and the outer sanctuary. Um, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. So in other words, the Holy of Holies is cubit. It, it, it is, it's like a big cube, okay? The dimensions are all the same, the length, the width, the height. And here we have in this holy city, a holy city of pure gold with all the dimensions the same. Here's what's happened. The Holy of Holies, which we're going to see points back to the Garden of Eden, is pointing us to this new heaven and new earth where God dwells with His people. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth has become one big Holy of Holies. God dwells with His people in the Holy of Holies. Who could go in the Holy of Holies? Only the priest, and that was once a year. But now God dwells with us. Why? We've been made fit to dwell with Him in the Holy of Holies. And notice it says, The, the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. We'll come back to that. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. I saw no temple. Interesting, isn't it? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He's telling us that the temple, the physical temple structure in the Old Testament 
points us beyond itself to something greater. The temple was where God dwelled with His people. It's where the sacrifice for atonement was made for God's people. Okay, It's where God's people came to worship. That temple is pointing us to this, this, this new heavens, this new earth, this age to come. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God. Gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Isn't that remarkable? The lamp, the light of this new heavens and new earth, this temple, is the Lamb. In fact, the name Jesus isn't even mentioned uh, in this section. Uh, but the Lamb is mentioned um, 28 times in the book of Revelation, 6 times in, this, in these last two chapters. Um, By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Why? It's the Holy of Holies. No one unclean, nothing unclean can go into the Holy of Holies, right? Not anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? You must be born again. You must repent of your sins. You must trust in Christ's provision for your sin. Then verse chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. You've got this river flowing. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. A different kind of fruit each month, it seems. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Now, whose name was written on the forehead in in, uh, the Old Covenant? Well, God's name was written on the forehead of the high priest. And now his name is going to be written on all of our foreheads. Why? Because we are all restored priests who can go into the Holy of Holies. We live, abide in the Holy of Holies. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign. Ah, not only will we be priests, we will be kings reigning. We will be priests, kings reigning, okay, forever and ever. This is where all things are headed. There was a Broadway play a few years back. And the director of this play was about to have a heart attack because he recognized they were no way, there was no way they were going to be ready for opening day of this play. It was getting a lot of notoriety in New York And yet, the practice, rehearsals for the play was a disaster. And they weren't going to delay opening night. But then he had an epiphany. He recognized that the lead actress was not qualified to be the lead actress. And he recognized that the supporting actress was. So... To the dismay of the lead actress, he had them reverse roles. And so now we have a new lead actress. And guess what happened? That play became electric. 
uh, the play became a huge hit because the, the actors in the play were playing the correct roles. In fact, these actors flourished because they were in roles they were qualified for. The world is not going to be right. Our relationships are not going to be right. Uh, even our local church is not going to be right until we see that our main problem is that we look at life kind of like a play where we desire to play the lead role. And there's not a single one of us that's qualified for the lead role of this play that we call life. Okay? And until we understand that, our lives will malfunction. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says our big problem is we live for ourselves. And upon Christ's resurrection, we now no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Him who gave Himself for us. The fact is, until we realize that Jesus Christ is the only one who can carry out the lead role, okay? Um, our plays, our lives are not going uh, to function the way God designed them to function. Revelation 21, okay? Revelation 21 to 22 is the account of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the consummation of a story that is centered upon a person, the lead actor, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about, okay? We, are, we, we have a supporting role. He is the lead actor of this story, okay? And, and so what we need to realize as we, as we consider this study tonight is that this story begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And it's a story that is ultimately carried out and achieved by one man, the man Jesus Christ. We're going to see next week that we do play a supporting role. That's where missions comes in. But tonight what I want us to see is the purpose for which God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what, do I, what I first established tonight was we see the new heavens and the new earth in verse 1, and then we see a city that has garden imagery, but it's shaped like a temple. So it's a garden city that's shaped like a temple. What is going on here? You would think after explaining the new heavens and the earth, he would have given you the, the description of the new heavens and the new earth. But instead, he begins to focus on a city that's garden-like and shaped like a temple. Well, what we're seeing here is that all of these realities in the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden, the temple, the city of Jerusalem, the land of Canaan, all of these realities were shadows, okay? They are, they are teaching tools, preparing us and pointing us to the ultimate reality of the new heavens and the new earth that is centered on God Almighty and the Lamb who carries out His plan. And I want to establish that tonight. Uh, so if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter... Uh, we could, we'll start in Genesis chapter 3. Um, what we're going to first see is that the Garden of Eden is the first temple. The Garden of Eden is the first temple. Now, what is my point here? My point here is to show that all of these things we see in the Old Testament are pointing us, okay? They're pointing us to something else. 
something greater. This is where we are headed. This is our destiny. And the first point I want to make tonight uh, in establishing that the Garden of Eden is the first temple is that this was the unique place of God's presence. Look with me in verse uh, 8 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so God is walking. I happen to believe that this is a, a Christophany. I happen to believe that this is the Son of God who is in the garden with them. Um, I can't prove that. But we know that God is eternally triune. And so this is an early uh, Christophany that's preparing God's people for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that word walking. Um, That same verb is found, now we've already looked at that, in Leviticus 26 verse 12. So look with me in Levitical. You can actually see it on the board. Leviticus 26, verse 12. This is referring uh, to God's sanctuary. And it says, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God. Now that's referring to the tabernacle. We saw that it's picked up in uh, Revelation 21 as well. It's picked up in Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. And so, um, just as God walked in the garden, He walked in the tabernacle, He walked in the temple, He walks in the, in the uh, new heavens and the new earth. So the Garden of Eden was the unique place of God's presence. We know God is, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But He is uniquely what I call covenantally present. His, his, uh, his evangelical presence was unique to the Garden of Eden. Now, the second point I want to make is that Adam was the first priest. Adam was the first priest. Now, why is that important? Well, where did the priest abide? Where did the priest work? The priest abided and worked and tended the temple. Okay? Look with me in uh, in Genesis 2, verse 15. Again, you may have that on the screen. In Genesis 2, verse 15... Uh, Moses writes, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Uh, Now, these two verbs, work and keep, what's interesting is they are found elsewhere in the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, to refer to the responsibilities of the priest in the tabernacle. For instance, in Numbers 3, uh, verses 7 and 8. In Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8, you have the, t- the priest who are actually doing this very thing. It's translated different, but it's the same verbs um, in, in the tabernacle. It says, They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or work at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. So this is the priest's responsibilities. And so you have Adam uh, who has those same responsibilities, working and keeping the garden of God. Okay, so that's the second argument that I make 
And again, I've been heavily influenced by Greg Bill. This was a chapter in my dissertation, in fact, but Greg Bill, uh, a world-class scholar, has argued this, and others have argued this as well. Um, the third argument for this, that this is the first um, temple, was that the garden was the place of the guarding cherubim. Look again in Genesis 3, uh, verse 24. Now, this is, I think, quite interesting. You know, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, um, in Genesis 3, verse 24, notice it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That word guard is the same word that was used for Adam to guard the garden. Now, Adam has lost his priestly responsibilities because he failed he didn't cast out the serpent. Uh, we'll look at that next week. And now God has placed the cherubim in the garden to guard it. Now that's very interesting because when you are looking uh, at the, um, the tabernacle, for instance, in, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 25, we know, we know that the tabernacle was built after their, uh, their uh, exodus. You, you see very interesting language there because the same, the same uh, words are used um, for, you know, the cherubim. Notice in Exodus 25, verse 18, And you shall make two cherubims of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on the mer- one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim. What he's doing, he's telling uh, Moses to build the Holy of Holies and the cherubim would be erected on the top of the Ark of the Covenant to guard the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It's the same cherubim that you see guarding the garden of God. So again, that's another argument that the garden of Eden was the first, you could say, Holy of Holies, the first First temple, if you will. Another argument here, um, and we will skip number four. I I will briefly uh, uh, mention it, uh, but but it's more speculative. The tree of life is depicted as the model for the lampstand directly outside the holy place. We'll skip that one for time's sake. Um, A fifth reason. Now, I, I found this very interesting. If you look in 1 Kings 6, and, I, and again, I think it's on the board. In 1 Kings 6, you have Solomon building the temple. And what's interesting is how it's designed. Um, for instance, verse 29, Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. What does that sound like? Sounds like a garden, doesn't it? You got a cherubim, and you got all these palm trees. And then verse uh, 32, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. And then on, in chapter 7, uh, verses 18 and 20, Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals that were on tops of the pillars and the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the t- two pillars and above the ground projection, which 
was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows. Then uh, you have on, on tops of the pillars were lily works. That's verse 22. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. And on and on and go. This is, this is garden-like imagery that the temple was designed. If you walked into the temple, that was the design. And it harkened back to the garden of Eden, the garden of the Lord. Another argument we want to make here is that a river flowed out of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 10. Now, why is that important? Well, um, in the end-time temple, Ezekiel 47, a temple flows, okay? A temple flows from God. We saw that in Revelation 22, verse 1 as well, uh, that in the end-time temple, this river is flowing um, and so in Genesis 2, you've got a river flowing out of Eden. Uh, a, a seventh reason, the garden is a place of precious stones. Genesis 2, verse 12. Notice he says, And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stones are there. For lack of time, um, we see this in Exodus. The tabernacle was made up of these very precious stones. Exodus um, uh, You've got uh, Exodus 25, for instance. Eden, uh, an eighth reason is that Eden was on a mountain. Eden was on a mountain. How do we know that? Because the river is flowing down, okay? Um, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 infers this. And the end-time temple is on a mountain. We saw that in Revelation. We saw it in Ezekiel 47 uh, or Ezekiel 28 as well. A ninth reason that we say that the Garden of Eden was the first temple is that the entrance to Eden was from the east. Genesis 3, verse 24. Notice, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. Ezekiel 40, verse 6, tells us the entrance to the end-time temple was from the east. All right? It's interesting, and I, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I believe that Jesus is the one in whom these temples point, and he tabernacled among us, and the wise men came from the east. Uh, you know, they came from the east to this, uh, this man who tabernacles upon, among us. Uh, we may not want to press that too far, but I think that is interesting. And so um, that's another argument. We're, we're just establishing a cumulative case here. Uh, tenth, um, Ezekiel views Eden um, as the garden of God. Ezekiel 28, verse 13, he calls it the holy mountain of God, Ezekiel 28, 14, and that it contained sanctuaries. Now that word sanctuary, uh, it refers elsewhere to Israel's tabernacle, uh, Leviticus 21, verse 23. Eleventh reason that I argue that the Garden of Eden was the first temple was that Adam and Eve were the image of God. In the ancient Near East, the kings would place, okay, the image of their gods in their temples. Now, I'm not in any way saying that Moses is borrowing from pagan religions, okay? I, I, we don't need to confuse uh, derivation with uh, confrontation, <clears throat> they were all a parody, okay, of, of the true religion. But the fact is, the, the 
the image of the God, the true God, was placed in the temple. Just as in the ancient Near East, the kings placed the image of their gods in their temple. And then 12th, and I don't want to get too confusing here, there's a, there's a three-part uh, structure uh, to the garden which corresponds to Israel's temple. Look in chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 8. Genesis 2, verse 8. Notice he says, and a lot of people don't realize this, uh, but, but the garden and Eden, we need to make a distinction there. Notice in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is bigger than the garden. So he planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And so you can look at it this way. Eden is a larger uh, piece of real estate and a garden is in Eden. Okay, but it's not the same dimensions as Eden. It's a smaller plot within Eden. And so this river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And then notice in chapter 3, verse 24, when they are cast out of the garden, it says, therefore man, or uh, chapter 3, verse 24, uh, he drove out the man and, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And so you've got, you've got Eden, you have the garden within Eden, and then you have the man and the woman being cast out of Eden. And so it's a three-part structure. You've got, um, you know, the rest of the world, you could say. Then you've got Eden, and then you've got the garden. The garden was the Holy of Holies. The garden was where God dwelled with his people, okay? And then you had Eden, then you had the outer, uh, the outer part, the rest of creation. And you think about the temple. The temple had the Holy of Holies, that's where God dwelled, and it corresponded to the unseen heavenlies where God dwelled. And then you have the holy place, which corresponded to the heavens that we see. It had a, a light stand in it, a menorah with seven lamps, which represented the five planets that, they could, that were visible to the naked eye and the, the, the two, uh, what he called lights, the moon and the sun. And so those seven lamps likely represented the, the, the lights that you could see with the naked eye. So the heavens that you could see, that represented the holy place. And then you had the outer sanctuary, which represented the rest of creation. Okay? What we're going to argue is that God's goal is that the most holy place, the holy of holies, is one day going to uh, subsume the rest of the temple and the rest of creation so that all of creation is one large temple. In fact, Hebrews says that the holy places made with hands are copies of the true things. So we know that the, that the temple was just a copy of that which is true. It pointed us to something beyond itself. And so the Garden of Eden and the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple served as a miniature earthly model. It's kind of like if you have a... If we were to add on to this sanctuary, you, you would have 
an architect who would come in perhaps and give you a model of what it would look like when it's built, okay, when it's ultimately built. The, the Garden of Eden and the, uh, the, the, the tabernacle and the temple ultimately pointed beyond itself to something greater. When the whole earth would be filled with God's glory, God's saving, God's glory presence. Now, why? And we're, gonna, we're going to uh, conclude tonight uh, with my argument for why I say that. Well, we've already seen that uh, the end of the, the story has God filling the entire planet with his presence, his glory presence. We saw that in Revelation 21. We're, all, we're also going to see next week uh, that it was God's design that the image of God would fill the earth. He tells Adam and Eve that in Genesis 1. He says, be fruitful, multiply, uh, rule, take dominion, and fill the earth. What were they to fill the earth with? God's glory. They were to multiply image bearers, and they were to fill the earth with God's glory. So we recognize by the very commission given Adam and Eve that it was God's design that the entire world would become one big garden of Eden, one big holy of holies, what John calls the new heavens and the new earth. But I want to argue as we close from a few passages in uh, the Old Testament. And then we will, then we will um, end our discussion. I'm going to try to answer any questions you might have if you, will, if you have them. First of all, notice in Isaiah 54. Uh, verses 2 and 3, here's what the prophet Isaiah says. Uh, it should be on the screen. It says, he says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Isn't that interesting? He is telling Israel who is in exile, that in the day of new heavens and new earth and new creation, when the servant comes, <coughs> spread abroad because your offspring is going to possess the nations. That's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. We'll see that next week. And so that's a very important prophecy. And then in Jeremiah 3, listen to what he says in verses 16 and 17. He says, again, Jeremiah is, is, is prophesying while Israel's in exile. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, and when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land. What does that sound like? That sounds like uh, Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. It also sounds like the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that your, your offspring is going to multiply as the stars in the sky. He says, when you uh, have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord... They shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, where was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? It was in the, holy, in the most, holy, uh, most holy place, right? The Holy of Holies. If uh, Indiana Jones had read this, he would have saved himself a lot of trouble. Uh, he shall not come to, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, 
And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. All the nations will be there. How can all the nations fit in this city? Well, unless this city has become universal in scope. All right? We saw that in Revelation chapter 21. And then note in Zechariah chapter 1. Chapter 1, listen, in verse 16, again, uh, Israel has been brought out of exile... And yet the glory of the Lord has not come back to the temple that they're rebuilding. And Zechariah 1 says, Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Now why does a a measuring line need to be stretched out over Jerusalem? Because it's about to be expanded. All right? Verse 17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Then chapter 2, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet me and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitudes of people and livestock in it. Jerusalem has been expanded, okay? It's a city without walls. It has no boundaries. And I will be to her a wall of fire. He will be the wall, okay? He will be a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad. Notice, as the four winds of the heavens. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. They shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Verse 11, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. What does that sound like? Revelation 21. I will dwell in your midst. You shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. And then you have this wonderful prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this vision he, he understands that it's a revelatory vision and he has Daniel not only tell him what the vision is, but he interprets it in long story short, verses uh, 34. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand. The temple was built by stones. This, this, so it's almost like a, the origin of a temple. Uh, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken, representing all the kingdoms of the world and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Notice, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. Where's the end time temple? It's on a mountain. It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. My goodness, this stone, this stone that struck all these rival kingdoms has filled the whole earth, has become one great mountain. Verse 44 And in those days, the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom 
that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. By the way, the book of the Revelation is very dependent on the book of Daniel uh, for its interpretation. And so you have these promises that are made uh, to, um, through the prophets that one day the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, um, is going to be expanded beyond all things. I want to close with just a couple of passages. In 1 Kings, um, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon builds the temple, all right? And, and, and it's interesting. Actually, if you want to even go further back than that, Exodus chapter 40. In Exodus chapter 40, Moses builds um, the tabernacle, or actually Bezalel built the tabernacle. And you remember the result? Exodus chapter 40. Y'all remember the result of what happened? Exodus 40, verse 34. Uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the glory of the Lord is His covenantal presence. It's His saving presence, okay? It's His unique... That's where God uniquely dwells. He fills the tabernacle, in particular, the Holy of Holies. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud uh, settled in it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He couldn't go in there. The cloud was so thick. The same thing happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. When uh, Solomon builds the temple, the same uh, exact thing happens occurs. Um, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So you got the glory of the Lord filling the holy of holies. And you know that in the Old Testament, time and time again, the hope is that one day this glory is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Numbers 14.21. Moses says, there's coming a day Surely as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's the same word. The glory cloud that filled the Holy of Holies, one day this glory is going to fill the earth. Okay? You see it again in Habakkuk 2, uh, verse 14. He uses a little different language, but he says, um, uh, May the, uh, that one day the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay? So you got it from the law. You got it from the prophets. You also have it from the Psalms. Psalm 72. It's one of the remarkable Psalms because it's a Psalm focused on the son of David. And in Psalm 72, 19, in a remarkable passage, he says, May your glory fill the earth. Uh, blessed be his glorious name. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That is the hope of the Old Testament. The glory cloud that was in the, whole, the Holy of Holies is one day going to fill the entire planet. Every nook and cranny of this, this sin-broken uh, world is going to be filled with the glory cloud of God. It's going to be one big Holy of Holies, okay? And incidentally, that, we, could, we could preach on that psalm right there because it's going to be affected through the Son of David whose rule and reign is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a remarkable passage, remarkable chapter, uh, Psalm 72. And so, how is that fulfilled? Well, when you think about that hope, uh, and you think about the fact that Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that interesting? Christ in you, the hope of glory... 
And then he says the very thing in Romans 5, 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God uh, through Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith in this hope in which we stand, the hope of the glory of the Lord. That was the hope. The glory of the Lord. What does that mean? That means the hope of the New Testament, the hope of the Old Testament, is that one day God is going to fill the planet with His glory presence. Which means that the hope of the world was that the Holy of Holies is about to go unleashed. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was rent. The curtain was torn 30-foot curtain, the Holy of Holies that uh, this veil protected was about to go unleashed, okay? Now, Jesus says that the temple pointed to him. He said that in John chapter 2. He says, you tear down this temple, and on the third day, I I will raise it up again. They said, now, what do you mean you, you, this temple, uh, It took 46 years to build this temple. And you can raise it up in three days? And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. The temple points us to where God dwells supremely. That's why John would say in John 1.14, The word became flesh and tabernacle. That's the word we get. That's the verb form of the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. Tabernacle. And we beheld his what? His glory. As of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus makes atonement for sin, which is where, uh, where was the atonement made in the Old Testament? In the temple. He makes atonement for sin. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. The Spirit comes down, okay, at Pentecost in a manner like a theophany, and the Holy of Holies is going unleashed on a people who are united to Jesus, the true temple. And do you know what the Bible describes us who are united to Jesus? The temple. The temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at that one next week. And here's what's happening. And and this will be continued next week. As the temple, that is those in Christ, the true temple, the church, the temple. By the way, you know what the word temple means? It's the word naos in Greek. The naos in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. As the Holy of Holies grows, as the temple grows, God's purposes for creation is fulfilled. Now, how does the temple grow? How are the boundaries of the temple extended? The Great Commission. That's why we do missions. That's why we sacrificially give to Lottie Moon. And we're going to look at that next week. Let's pray. Lord God, we